Shop Amazon for last-minute gifts. Great deals for everyone on your list. Gifts for mom and gifts for dad. Even for your sister and your brother, Chad. Ah, shoot, we didn't realize we were supposed to get a gift for our dog walker guy. We almost forgot about our dentist, Dr. Kerr. We didn't expect to get a gift from her. Or our cousin, I forget his name. He got us something nice, better reciprocate. For last-minute deals on gifts for people you forgot. Get past the free shipping at Amazon. Peloton is gifting you their best offer of the season. Get up to $600 off Peloton Bike, Bike Plus, or Tread packages. Choose the package that is right for you with accessories ranging from cycling shoes to non-slip grip dumbbells and more. Whether you have 10 minutes to spare for a strength class or 30 minutes for a running or cycling class, there's a workout that works for you with music that is truly iconic. So don't miss out on Peloton's best offer of the season. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer ends December 6, 2022. Excludes bike, bike plus, and tread basic. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. From the creators of Relevant Magazine, this is The Relevant Podcast. It's Friday, August 24th, 2018, and it's The Relevant Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Strang, and here with me in our Orlando studios, our illustrious engineer, my brother, Chandler Strang. Hello. I'm trying to, I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, it's an interesting situation. On the Skype line from the Jersey Shore, Jesse Carey. Hello, hello. Still Going strong on my vacay here. Yeah. <laughs> a, little, a little GTO. Uh, on the Skype line from Nashville, Tennessee, Annie F. Downs. Good morning, gents. And joining us for the whole show today from Los Angeles, California, our very favorite science guru, Science Mike McHarg. Good morning. Welcome to the show, sir. I'm oh, so excited to be here, as always. I'm so glad. It's our first time being friends, Mike. I'm thrilled about it. <laughs> M- Mike, just for a little context, I- I'm actually on vacation right now recording. As you can tell from the decor behind me, the house came equipped with the standard random beach house photos of like sand dunes, <laughs> a-, a lamp right here by be- the bedside that's made of seashells, oh, yeah. you know? Like, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. I think... I- I've never seen these in any other homes other than beach houses, but I'm pretty sure they just come with them. Like the like the contractor just builds them right into the like that that sand dune painting. I'm assuming he's built right into the drywall here. It's just you know, <laughs> like the building inspector comes through and he's like, "There's not enough sand dune portraits," so you know it doesn't pass. You get a couple right. more, we'll talk. You know? Right? Uh, does it also have seashells uh, on random furniture? Oh yeah, just like randomly glued there. You're like, you like you can't take <laughs> yeah, your yeah. drink down because someone glued a conch shell or like a half a clam <laughs> oh it does look pretty relaxing though yeah that's good is there a huge collection of wicker furniture is there just so much yeah, wicker? I, 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 wicker no i i'm not i'm not it's funny you say that any the living room is entirely wicker it isn't it is literally yeah, entirely sure it wicker is. and so. i guarantee you there is a table lamp somewhere that is a glass base filled with the shells right i mean it's yeah. like a yeah <laughs> Hold on. that's the one that's right beside no him way. It's right beside oh, him. Oh, it really is. 
full of shells. Love it. Not only do I have the signature seashell lamp right beside me, we also got a great show. I talked to Jonathan Merritt about his brand new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, coming up later. Uh, I, I, I do want to note, over the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about it, but this might be my last podcast because as you're listening right now, Stop. on Friday, I will be running the 200-mile relay race hood to coast and I might die. So I, I, here's the thing: I'm so glad Mike's on today because Mike, we've been going. Me and Annie been going back and forth of this. I believe here's the difference between Annie and I. I'm a biblical literalist, and when the Bible says the power of the tongue have life and death, I'm speaking life into Cameron and say, Cameron, it doesn't matter your Thank lack you. of training. You can will yourself forward when your body says stop. Push forward, brother. Annie is speaking death, literally death. She's afraid Cameron's going to die. Yeah. Science Mike, from a science perspective. No, Mike, I'm not saying Cameron's right. going to die. <laughs> uh, how, how far on that relay race will you be doing uh, a given segment, Cameron? Okay, so so there's a ten, like 10 of us on the team, and we have to go 200 miles. So each of us are about a total of 20 miles in three chunks. We are going from 6,000 foot elevation on Mount Hood to the beach on the coast of Oregon. We're running through the night. It's about a 24-hour race. Uh, we have a van, and we have to basically, if you sleep at all in between your seven or eight hours uh, uh, you know, chunks, um, you're sitting up in a van with sweaty other runners. Uh, it's going to be horrible. Um, okay, Mike, here's the other stat you need before you make a science decision about Cameron's ability to survive this. Cameron, how far is your shortest leg you're going to run in the race? Around four miles to around six miles will be my leg. And how in high far elevation. is the longest that you have trained so the far? The longest I have personally run at the point of this recording, which is two days before the race, the longest I have run is a run continuously without having to even slow down mm-hmm. like a mile and a half okay. uh, run in one session total probably three miles do you total. see my concern science uh, i do I, uh, believe it or not i have a little relevant <laughs> I experience uh, okay. i used to be a Good. marathoner no and wow. uh so i've done 26.2 i've actually run as long as 30 miles um wow. and wow. what i will oh, tell wow. you is at very long distance training and distance racing if you take a blood test right after a run that long, it would be difficult for a cardiologist to tell the difference between a marathon and a pretty serious heart attack without doing heart imagery. So so wow. very long distance running can be oh dangerous. Gosh. Oh gosh. Uh, oh so Cameron, what I would encourage you to do now, four to six miles is a much more manageable yeah, chunk. Just right. make sure you rest in between. Three times though, Mike. Three when times. You don't you run between hours. now and the race. Just walk. And during the race mm-hmm. to maximize not only your performance, uh, from your muscle tissue, but also minimize strain on your heart. Carry a small timer and alternate between running and walking segments. Studies have shown consistency consistently that even among elite athletes, a run-walk rhythm uh, not only increases your average pace across the distance of the race, but also reduces the amount of stress on your heart and uh, cardiovascular system. Hope- so my, I honestly, the reason why I've never been a runner ever in my life, I mean, I played basketball and other things, but I never ran because when I was a kid, I had bronchial asthma and I always had to have an inhaler when I played sports. So as an adult, I just like, well, I just don't do that. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll go to the gym and I'll do other things, but I just don't run. I, I didn't have strong cardiovascular. I went and got, I went to the doctor last week, got an inhaler. It's the difference of being able to mm. breathe is unbelievable. Like get, uh, oxygen has been unbelievable. My goal for this whole thing is an 80, 20 
rhythm. I run 80% and walk 20%. And I don't care about the time because at the end of the day, the reason why we're doing it is I'm on, I'm doing it. I got talked into joining team world vision and we're doing it to raise money for clean water projects in South Sudan. And each of us on the team have a goal of, of $10,000 uh, which will permanently like ch- like provide clean water for th- like 300 people. And uh, we're all t- together, all the 10 teams of Team World Vision, we're trying this one race to raise a million dollars. Wow. I was worried. I, so, so my thing is like, I just wanted to raise money for clean water. And I'm telling you, last week, I put on my fundraising page. I blasted people on social media. I sent emails. And within a day and a half, I raised $11,000. And, and, and I hit the goal. So in other I'm words, like, listen, there's no I can backing le- down now. I can leisurely <laughs> in other stroll. words, you can walk away no, because you no. have the money. People, I did people will be you can't Mike, at what this is a question I've thought about. Mike, I'm really concerned at, about this. At what point can Cameron expect to lose control of his bodily functions <laughs> in humiliating fashion on the side of Mount Hood? If you catch I'm not gonna give you more graphic than that. But at what point will that definitely happen? <laughs> If, as long as Cameron avoids the famed carbo loading the night before the race, which is actually a mm. terrible idea, uh, he's much less likely to have gastrointestinal disturbances. Although it does happen uh, okay, at longer race. Mike, directions. please tell me. I, uh, I make, didn't. And I didn't know this, but I on Thursday night before the Friday race, uh, Friday to Saturday, there is a big kickoff dinner that I was told by the other participants is the carbo load meal. So you're saying avoid it. Yeah, it's too oh, it's yeah, too so late to get your glycogen glycogen stores up in the last meal before the race. Uh, you would want to eat a relatively lean, protein rich meal for dinner. Your carbo loading would happen uh, the three days before okay. that in reasonable okay. portions distributed through your meals, uh, at least based on how the body absolutely the where the the mythology of runner's diarrhea comes from is from night before <laughs> carbo loading because running. As you run, uh, blood is going to be pulled away from your stomach and intestines, and any food matter there can actually start to uh, curdle or ferment, oh, gosh. and oh, then oh, your Lord. body does what your body does to stay healthy. So it's best to eat a lean meal the night before, have generous carb portions, maybe you know the day before the day before the race, but nothing crazy. Uh, focus on protein, and then really important during the race. Uh, don't drink just water or just sports drinks. If you drink just sports drinks, your electrolytes are going to get too high. That can cause gastrointestinal distress. If you drink only water, you're not going to have enough electrolytes, and that give you a headache and performance problems. So alternating between plain water and sports drinks at your aid stations at the races or, or however you're handling that supply chain will maximize uh, not only your how you feel, wow, but also think, your athletic performance. I mean, what about the no sleep part, Mike? How about that? That's well, a, that's hold a on. Can I make one meal suggestion? Oh, gosh. Can I make one meal suggestion based on that? A big, extra spicy bowl of jambalaya. <laughs> I mean, you got, you've got the seafood, you've got that creamy sauce. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some fresh... Some fresh piping hot jambalaya <laughs> that morning. I would have it in the van just to fuel up. Just a, just a crock pot of spicy jambalaya <laughs> plugged yeah. into the, What's the crock pot lighter. You, you, yeah, you have a crock pot you're dragging behind <laughs> the, on a trailer and you're just sipping the jambalaya as you run. You know, I think just fueling could, you. 
I got an email oh, last night from the team captain. And he was like telling everybody how to pack. And again, this podcast is coming up on Friday. We're recording this on Tuesday. So I'm leaving tomorrow for Portland. Um, and he was telling us how to pack. And he was like, the, the packing list, like, you know, your little bag that you bring on the overnight, you know, uh, he was saying like things like headlamps and reflective gear. And it dawned on me. I didn't even think about this. We'll be running by ourselves through the streets of Oregon at 4 a.m. in the dark. It's not like we're staying on major roads. I mean, you're going on like little, like little two lane roads through towns and stuff. Right. Like I'm going to be like by myself running through the woods of Oregon in the dark. And he's like, bring a headlamp, bring things. Who knows what's jumping out of the woods? You know, I mean, like I'm actually getting legit. You're you're in, you're in peak Yeti country, man. (laughs) That place is crawling with cryptozoological phenomena. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be out there in the middle of the day on those back roads, much less in the middle of the night. You're asking for it, man. Missing four one one out there. I, so, I so to our dear listeners, uh, it's been since 2005, we've been doing this podcast. Stop. I just want to say, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And I just am ready for this to be done. I'm ready for you to talk about how you survived it and just and ready to not be worried. Right. Right. I'm ready we, to, I've been worried consistently since oh, February. We, science, we, Mike. I think my heart hey, is more concerned I, than any is when more I'm risk on, than anyone when I'm on that treadmill <laughs> and I'm 30 minutes in and I'm about to die and I'm going, Oh man, I'm only at like two miles. And like, this is not even half of my shortest leg. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I just don't and know you're how at sea level and I'm at sea level. And I'm like in a nice air conditioned room as opposed to the blazing hot sun and the cold nights. It's going to be an extreme temperature drop uh, variance. Like, I don't know how to physically do this. I've never experienced anything like this before. And all the other runners on, our, on my team are like super encouraging. Like, oh, you'll have a blast. I'm like, I don't think you realize how out of shape I am. Like, I don't know. I am in a pain. I am in pain. You guys are having fun. I, I, don't I just pulled up. I just pulled up the wheel we've been working Mark. on. And Thank I'm you. adding Mike to the <laughs> oh, invitation to participate in the Viking funeral. How it works is, Mike, we push Cameron out into like Puget Sound out there in Oregon. Right. And we all get flaming yeah. arrows. Whoever gets in first take sole possession of relevant. <laughs> Mike's actually the closest since he's already West Coast. Mike, well, you're going to be our first call to go rescue I'm Cameron <sighs> when things I'm get in. weird. I have no chance of winning the fire arrow shooting relevant inheritance, <laughs> but if you need a runner rescue service, I probably am best positioned. It'll be too late for that, but we'll keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he'll be dead, but we'll just you will be there find, first. will find, though, the, the cold nights are yeah. fantastic. There's nothing better than cold night running well, uh, because you produce in? so much body heat. Uh, the cold air really, really, really increases your performance and comfort running. But what about breathing in the cold air, like the cold lung thing, cold cold throat thing? I mean, like how, like again, being a Floridian, I breathe in, I breathe in moisture. I'm not used to like dry cold at all. Like what's that like? I would think that'd be like razors and like, like painful. It's not no? great. It's not great. Um, so, so the way I dealt with that was was uh, when I ran the marathon, I would wake up on Saturdays at 2 a.m. and try to run for six to eight hours. Um, and I was wow. running in, in December, January. So a lot of mornings it was, you know, 29 or Ooh, even what? 25. And so I got used to that. Uh, about the sixth run, it doesn't bother bother you anymore. So you might find that you acclimatize during the run. Oh yeah. Uh, but I'm glad you've got that inhaler because that that will be a stressor yeah. on and, your and respiratory Mike, system. And Mike, I'd like to dispel 
Well, real quick, can I dispel a common rumor for you, Cameron? That would just put your mind at ease a little. A lot of people say when you're on these long runs and you're breathing that cold air, it's like a knife stabbing you in the chest. That's not like that at all. It's actually more like a thousand tiny (laughs) knives stabbing you in the chest. So I I wanted to clear that up. It's a common misconception, but since we're talking about it, I feel like we need to. And and really the lower throat. A thousand tiny knives in the lower throat is is pretty accurate. All I know is. You have a great time, bud. The people of uh, South Sudan are going to get clean water, and that's why we're doing it. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, they start the clean water, so you're just doing it for no reason at this point. Oh, that's true. I didn't even think of that. (laughs) Raise the money. Oh, man. It's a futile exercise. Oh, thanks. Um, All right, we'll move the show along. It is time for Slices. Slices. All right, what do you have, Jesse? Okay, uh, I, I picked this one specifically because because I knew Mike was going to be joining us this morning. Um, it's there's a there's a headline I ran across that I wanted to I wanted to discuss a little bit, I, and and it's a twofold question. Um, ice has recently been found on the surface of the moon, and the reason one of the reasons this is important because it raises the prospects of of mankind being able to have a lunar colony because you can tap the ice there and use that for water. Because I evidently Wait, how one did of the, they, how did they just find it? Did a camera take a picture of it? Yeah, I guess like satellite imagery found and they already suspected it was there, but they recently had like new evidence that in parts of the moon that don't regularly get or never get sunlight, that it is in fact ice. And so from my understanding, one of the major obstacles to colonizing the moon would be how would you get something like water up there? Like you can't just run a big pipe up to I mean maybe you could that would I don't know if they're talking about that we're side oh, notes, idea, a little, well, I'm going I'm Elon Musk in this thing just thinking outside the box we just run a big pipe to the moon maybe all we need is a moon plumber up there no so so but these big these big uh, you know areas that are frozen water could potentially be a solution to that obstacle which is very cool I guess I don't really have, Mike, I have a couple questions, but they don't really have to do, I think I understand the ice on the moon. Like that, that seems logical. Like if there was water anywhere, that would be frozen in parts of the moon that don't get sunlight because it's cold. I get that. But my question is even a little bit further back than that. Why do we even want to colonize the moon? Like, what benefit does it bring? No one's ever explained that to me. Like, I remember like Newt Gingrich ran for president on moon, on the moon colonization platform. That was like his big thing. And he almost <laughs> sold me because it sounded awesome, but I'd never have heard a good case why we need to go and actually have people live there. Mike, if this is the first step to legitimately colonizing the moon, what is a good reason that we should even I do it? I can give you three amazing reasons to colonize oh, the good. moon. Okay. Okay. One, we have found consistently across the arc of human spaceflight that by attempting to create engineering solutions to the difficult problems of getting to and surviving within space, we push forward humanity's technological prowess in a way that gets re-inherited into human industries and human economy right right here on Earth. That's one. Two... Because space is such a difficult environment to live in, it helps us understand ways that we can not only survive on the Earth in more difficult conditions for exploration, but understand uh, techniques that may be useful for survival in the events of global ecological catastrophe um, or uh, allow us to have collections of humans on other celestial bodies in the event of, say, an impending asteroid strike that would threaten a oh. significant portion of the human population, it's an mm. insurance policy. But neither of those are the best reasons to colonize the moon. 
Okay. The best reason to colonize the moon is because of its low gravity. If we built a lunar base that had a swimming pool on the moon, the water would okay. stay in the pool, but you could swim and leap out of the water like a dolphin Whoa. without flippers because <laughs> of the lower gravity. Awesome. What? So you're talking so we're talking ultimately the goal Wait. here. Like so survival of of humankind. Who that, cares? Sure. We're talking Who a moon cares? water. We park can here. jump out of a swimming pool <laughs> like a dolphin. Exactly. Just woo-hoo. Oh. And there's no way to simulate that on Earth. The only way we can do it is invest billions of dollars, probably trillions Trillions, of dollars. A a lunar swimming pool would be a trillions of dollars investment. Uh, Risk it, everybody. Are you kidding? Multiple astronauts (laughs) launch a sixth branch of the military called the Space Force. (laughs) <laughs> just for the prospect. Yeah. <laughs> and which yeah, I'm yeah, interested yeah. in your Space Force thoughts too, Mike. Just for the prospects of having a moon swimming pool that we could, you know, potentially go and visit. I'm in 100%. I, w- I, w- I was a pool lifeguard at one point. I know the fun <laughs> that can be having pools. Okay. I've seen, trust me, I've seen it all. Okay? I want you to imagine being under the surface, diving into a pool. Sweeping up like you do as you come up, grabbing a basketball off the surface of the pool and then dunking it into a 10 foot goal at the end of the pool. That's completely plausible wow. with lunar physics. Oh, and, and here's Jesse? here's why. Even just to, to revolutionize pool basketball, because here's my I love basketball and I love swimming in pools. You would think pool basketball would be awesome. Anyone who's played pool basketball, it's impossible to make a it's jump so shot hard. on that hoop. Yeah. There's only one way to score, and that's to muscle your way to the basket and try to dunk, <laughs> which is impossible because there's no yes. rules in pool basketball. You can't dribble. People are literally just yanking. I've seen friendships lost in a game of pool basketball. Yes, I've yes. seen multiple bloody right. noses because there's only one way to get to the hoop. You're talking about the, a revolution. I, I would watch this game, this sort of like hybrid <laughs> Dunk contest water oh, polo that you're suggesting. Sure. It seems worth the risk. Second question, follow up. Wait, hold on. Can I wear my yeah. like? I have a mermaid tail that I own, Mike. Would that work as well? I would. Can I jump out like a Wait. dolphin, but actually be a mermaid? Wait, you do. A hundred percent. And I you've worn it in public. <laughs> it's a blanket. <laughs> no, no, hold on. Andy's the type. Andy just revealed that she's the, like you ever when Sky Mall was a thing. You ever flipping through Sky Mall and you're like, oh, who's yeah. keeping Sky Mall in business? Like who just who just spent three hundred dollars on this uh, wizard garden gnome that is also a solar panel? Like no, 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 not that. Who, who's it was buying? A the Lord of the Rings memorabilia. We found Annie buys stuff. You, that was Sky no, Mall no, no. purchase. It was a, someone gifted me with a mermaid tail blanket. Okay. And now I'm just imagining this would be my perfect spot. Besides when I wear it in the winter because it keeps me right. warm. It's the perfect spot. I can take it to the moon and I can flip out like an actual mermaid. You could if you had one of the... They also make mermaid tails that are designed for swimming. They're basically a monofin. One of yes. those you could get really incredible loft out of the water. The blanket would probably impair you slightly, but with lunar gravity, not a huge deal. I bet you could still break the surface. (laughs) So, okay, here's the other question is say that, say this, this dream becomes a reality. Do you think that will justify Space Force? Is there a good reason for a Space Force right now? What are oh, your yeah, thoughts we've been on wanting Space to ask Force? You this there's, there's a Space Force in the Air Force, and there's 30,000 people who are working on space defense. There, It exists. There's no need for a new 
military unit for it. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry, this is a question for science, it, Mike well, Cameron. But to sorry. Cameron's point, it's a policy <laughs> question, not a science question. This is about how an existing group of career military professionals are organized within the government. I, I just don't feel qualified to weigh in. I mean, it, it's the whole... The we'll NASA, qualify you. You're this totally This is my qualified. NASA coffee mug, and I think it's hilarious that you know mm. one of the Space Force uh, logos is like copyright infringement on a government agency. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> um, but but you know, there's th- a whole different field uh, for the Air Force's space operations. What they're doing in space versus what NASA's doing in space. Now, they do have an right. amazing budget, and occasionally yeah. they give NASA stuff, and they get very excited about that. But generally, what the Air Force is up to in space, uh, I'm less excited about than what NASA's working on. Right, right. Uh, yeah, because NASA it tends is, to be uh, counterintelligence. It, the right. one thing I do think uh, yeah. that maybe the military is working on in, in secret to a level that NASA can't touch is what to do the in the event of satellite attacks, right. meaning if, if another uh, government were mm. to weaponize satellites and attack other satellites, that could really mess up spaceflight because of the debris fields that would make low Earth orbit unnavigable. So the fact that they might be working on counter methods, not only to prevent the weapon, weapons discharges in the first place, but also to deal with the corresponding debris fields, that technology would be really useful in the event of a non-weaponized satellite accident or collision that caused a lot of debris in lower Earth orbit. So that's one project I'm really excited about. And honestly, if creating a space force keeps that one initiative funded in a bipartisan way, then I'm all for it. Uh, But in general, what excites me about space travel is things like the International Space Station, uh, where countries that might even have degrading or difficult international relations on a geopolitical sense work together on frontiers of science and exploration. And I think space travel at its best encourages us to think about humanity as an entire species and not a collection of competing nations. Also, I'll get to swim like a dolphin. Yeah, I think I think when. When we can, you know, work together, or some people say collude with other. <laughs> I knew you had some good word coming because you had a giggle other, on your face. With other countries. <laughs> the fake news? I don't know. I don't, I'm just saying no collusion. That's that's all. That's all. I, knew, I don't believe Mike, it. Did you see fake his face, news. too? He fake had like news, a little Mike. giggle in his face. There was news flash, coming. News flash fake news. That's incredible. No collusion. Are you, Mike? I'm, no, I, I, don't know, I don't know what you heard about it. I know what you heard. No Growing up 30 miles from Kennedy Space Center, I obviously, you know, space exploration and stuff like that is a big part of the culture here in Central Florida. But uh, are you a uh, are you a Mars colonization person or a moon colonization person? I, I understand the technological innovations that would have to happen either way will benefit humanity here and now and all that. I, it's a valid argument. Obviously, there's a big push toward Mars. And I just, when I, I mean, the more I learn about Mars, the more I think it just seems like a futile exercise, like as, you know, to save humanity and all that stuff. It just, you know, with moon, the moon is so much more attainable. What, what are your thoughts? As a save humanity exercise, we're going to have to colonize both. I'm going to have to colonize both to scales unimaginable today. Right, right. So in the near term, we're talking about what advances are human space flight capacity the most and the fastest 
you make a reasonable argument for either. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'm excited anytime. Well, no, I don't think we can do both at the same time. Mm. Uh, but right now, human spaceflight is completely happening in low Earth orbit. We haven't sent people beyond that range since the Apollo program. So whether it's return to the moon or a shot at Mars, either one would dramatically increase our capacity to explore space. I think the moon's probably more feasible. And I think Mars probably has a bigger scientific technological payoff. But there's no reason that uh, establishing a moon base, uh, maybe instead of having a low Earth orbit system like the International Space Station, couldn't serve as a, a human readiness and training factor that then prepared us to make a shot at Mars. But right now, robots are doing a pretty good job on Mars. Um, so maybe keep sending great nuclear-powered SUVs to the red planet, and let's put boots on the ground right here on the moon. A year ago, I, I um, the Nat, Nat Geo did that uh, series uh, called Mars uh, about you know the the colonization. And I got flown out to Hawaii where there's actual, um, in the lava fields there, they have like biodomes where volunteers, uh, what do they call it? Habanots. I, I believe they're calling themselves. They would sign up for a year to basically live in this biodome in the lava fields of Hawaii and, um, treat it as though it would be, you know, like they're living on a colony in Mars and, and going there. Like it was so fascinating because like the, you know, cause I'm thinking like, how do you, cause the international space station right now, I mean like half of the flights that go up there are to take supplies and parts and things yeah. to it, but going to Mars, that'd be impossible. And so what they're talking about doing is like flying a mission, an unmanned mission there, dropping a whole bunch of robots and 3d printers on the surface that would then be, you know, be able to take the mar the, the the soil and stuff and turn that into filament that then the 3D printers can then be building the buildings and habitats <gasps> and the equipment that they would be needing. And that's then brilliant. the humans would come join it later to something that's already kind of like created for them. And that which is fascinating to me. Like that sort of innovation and that sort of self-sufficiency that would be so necessary on the moon or Mars really will benefit us benefit us here on Earth because I mean, imagine how that would revolutionize just construction and and yeah. homes and cities and infrastructure and and farming and things that you know or you know environmental impact and footprint and things, carbon emissions that we right now are struggling with with the population boom and things like that. It it really will benefit humanity by having to kind of crack the nut and solve this. Like, how do you exist on uh, you know another uh, you know planet? So. It's interesting. Man, I, I love I'm if fascinated. this is all the stuff we know. How much stuff is NASA and Space Force doing that we don't know? <laughs> I, I, I love this. I just like the fact that, it, like, I'm a picturing from what Mike said that there's one guy at NASA who's just in charge of figuring out the pool situation. Up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bill's working on a big project. Uh, he's putting a deep end in. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a whole thing, man. He's going, you know, <laughs> figuring out how to play sharks and minnows up there. He's got to, yeah. Well, and especially his main job is to figure out how to keep the lunar sand out of the pool area right? yeah, since you. it is razor because. sharp and uh, can even cut your lungs. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Much like the cool wow, Portland air okay. in the middle of the night. Well, I'll say this. He's just developed he's just developed this cool thing. If 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 an astronaut decides to be lazy, if you know what I mean, the pool water up there will turn blue. You'll know who <laughs> decided that you'll know if you know that is my greatest even there. honestly That's that is my greatest fear. I as I was swimming as a child growing up in Florida I think I had there was like one family that did do that, you know, that like I, that I remember yeah. 
Like they put that ingredient in the pool that turned it a color if you didn't get out. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, if you pee and, in and, the pool, why are you not saying pee in the yeah, pool? Yeah, pee in the pool. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I like every pool I'm in, any public pool I'm in from now on for the rest of my life, I always think, is this one of the pools that has one of those ingredients? And you just... Good. I know. I'm just saying. I, I'm just like, but I've never seen this again. Picturing, like a press conference where like the, the commander of our space fleet for General Space Force is like, we have disturbing news this evening from the moon base. One of our Soviet colleagues has found to have peed in the pool. And like it starts like an international. And, so, and it's like satellite image of just like a little blue patch in the water of the pool. And it's like, OK. You know, this is why we developed the technology. Oh, and we man. got a guy working on you this. You know what? Like, you know? again, Floridian, we know a lot about pool chemistry. And, uh, like, you know, like the common perception is like public pools have a, they pump a ton of chlorine in there and it's because of the, that stuff, right? Yeah. Chlorine doesn't kill pee. The only way to rid the water of pee is to drain the pool and put new water in. What public pool do you know of that has done that? None. The pool, the pee yeah, stays. Am I, Mike, am I wrong? The worst like, thing the coin does not kill the pee, right? Most most public most public pools and fountains are generally on average. I can't remember the stat, but it's seventy to eighty five percent urine. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> so, it's out the, there. The it's CDC a- did a report earlier in the summer. Uh, they went across the country oh, and no, sampled Mike. an incredible number of public pools. Yeah. And basically found that north of 80 something percent of pools aren't safe for humans to be in. Whoa. Um, no. I mean, it's bad because oh the chlorine you put in the pool is pri- its primary function is as a sterilizing agent, a disinfectant yeah. for microbial life. And when people people tend to get, ah, I don't need a shower. I'm jumping oh. in the pool. That'll clean me off. And when they do that, the the chlorine reacts with their body's oils. It reacts with the sunscreen and with what is also very common in public pools, fecal matter. And and, and that creates something called chlorinate. It's a chemical change. So chlorine on its own is not an irritant. But when you have that chlorine smell in a pool, that's not chlorine. That's chlorinates that have reacted with a biological contaminant. And that's what functions as a respiratory irritant. So not only... Is it a respiratory irritant? But the fact that you can smell chlorine means the pool water has reached its load capacity mm. for purifying. So not only is there a chemical irritant, there's also an active microbial <laughs> presence, load which means, capacity. and I'm serious, I never, ever under any circumstances put anything above my neck below the waterline in a public pool or a private well, pool. Honey, that you throw like a couple pouring. old band-aids in the pool filter that everyone's found <laughs> and you got yourself a real This is why I only swim in the lunar pool, uh, you guys. Yeah, exactly. This is why I only exactly. swim on the moon. Yeah. That's so gross, Mike. Yeah. That's so yeah. gross. It, so if I smell chlorine at a pool, don't, don't get in the get pool. Don't get in the pool. Wow. Mm. Oh, I'm so disturbed. I live on the edge, man. I live on the edge. It's too hot. It's too, <laughs> life is too short. Capacity. Life is too short not to get, take a dip in a, you know, oh. urine infested pool every once in a while. It's too short. <laughs> gotta live, gotta live a little, gotta live a little, gotta live a little. All right. Uh, Mike, what do you have? Uh, well, I went to one of my favorite news outlets, which is news.mit.edu. And uh, I found that recently, August 9th, that neuroscientists have found probably the neurological mechanism of pessimism uh, in brains. And that comes down to a particular 
brain structure called the caudate nucleus, which is part of our basal ganglia. That's a very ancient part of uh, mammal brains. Mm-hmm. And they basically found that uh, when you have ongoing chronic stressors or, say, electrical current applied to your uh, caudate nucleus, you get into a sense of pessim- pessimism, which clouds your judgment and it makes you see uh, all the negative outcomes for a given situation. By understanding a neurological mechanism for pessimism and understanding the way that it shapes cognition in ways that create decision-making pathways that worsen an organism's circumstances, that's giving them a foundation to work on therapeutic techniques to neurologically treat pessimism to give people a more positive outlook and find ways that they can make positive changes oh. in their life. So, so how how uh, uh, is nice. that something that could be done through like some sort of like drug that could affect brain chemistry there? Or you mentioned like electric currents. Like I listened, it might have been an episode of Radio Lab a while ago about experimentation with like magnet therapy uh, um, for stuff like that, for like uh, essentially some mood altering capabilities that things like that would have. When so if they wanted to treat pessimism not on a psychology like a psychological la- level but a neurological level right what would the method look like well that's what th- this kind of basic research uh then serves as fodder for other researchers to come along now that they begin to understand a neurological mechanism at play to come up with neurological medical solutions as well as psychological solutions modern psychology has a very a productive relationship with neuroscience. If you can imagine if you're trying to fix a computer, uh, you can deal completely on a software level. But if there's something going on with the hardware, you might need to open the case, so to speak, and work more directly. And so by understanding the part of the brain at play, not only can we work on things like medical uh, solutions via like pills or, or chemicals, or something like deep brain electrical stimulation, which has been used to treat things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's very successfully in experiments. But you can uh, use psychological techniques in conjunction with brain imaging studies and see which ones are the best at altering brain activity without any sort of medical intervention. So the great work of neuroscientists in identifying what parts of the brain are engaging in what parts of the human experience lay the groundwork for other parts of the medical community to come up with therapeutic practices that improve lives. Um, the other question is how? Like, how do they identify? <laughs> how, how, how is this? Okay, how? <laughs> then, uh, but like, how, do, how do they do it? Like, are they Mike's like brain scanning somebody and like, they have a half empty or full glass? So like, how do you determine that that part of the brain is associated with pessimism? Oh, so in this particular study, uh, the, the primary test subjects were animal subjects who had electrodes implanted in their brains, and they were given uh, problem-solving tasks that had high-risk, high-payoff options and low-risk, low-payoff options. And they found uh, that when they applied electrical stimulation to the caudate nucleus, animals not only... Uh, had more difficulty making decisions. It took them longer to make a decision. They were more likely to choose high risk, high payoff options. But of course, since they're high risk, they're very often most likely to get nothing. Uh, and so when you, when you pull that out to a larger behavioral framework, 
uh, when people get very stressed out and very pessimistic and they're very concerned, they tend to take riskier behaviors uh, as plausible than they would in a normal framework. And they, in, in hopes of this one miraculous thing that will improve their life. Whereas organisms that aren't in a pessimistic or chronic stress state tend to go for consistent low payoffs over time, which is a guaranteed strategy for life improvement. Uh, so that was the mechanism of the experiments in this particular case. And it, the, the the reward was juice and the... Uh, like literal juice. Like uh, animals love juice uh, <laughs> and uh, sugar. And then unpleasant stimulus, which is a puff of air in the face. So you could make these decisions and one of them, you got a lot of juice occasionally, but mostly you got a puff of air in the face. And the other one, you just always got a little bit of juice. And so when they would stimulate the caudate nucleus, the same animal that had been choosing the consistent small dose of ju- juice started basically gambling the, for it, juice. That, that, even that aspect's fascinating because if they were, if I was like in the in the mouse lab or whatever, and they'd be like, "All right, you got to figure out one of these are pessimistic." I'd be like, "Okay, which one just seems like a real bummer to hang out with? Like, which which mouse seems like a, just a real drag, man? Why? Because that's probably that guy. He's probably the pessimist. We'll isolate that guy's brain. You know, you would be well, you'd be well." Uh, put to use in qualitative research like uh, market fo- okay. f- focus groups probably Jesse mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh good good I'm glad they have some purpose neuroscientists <laughs> tend to want quantitative <laughs> research variables yeah I'm, I'm I don't want to be boxed in by like <laughs> I said right. quote unquote science observable predictable <laughs> outcomes now we're gonna roll the dice a little here <laughs> okay what do you have Annie well I also did some important research just like science Mike and did you guys know that last Saturday on August 18th was the most popular wedding day of the oh year. Goodness. You guys, let's talk about it. August. Uh, why? I thought it was June weddings. No, according to the knot, which is the number one digital wedding website, you know, where people register 28,633 couples got married last Saturday. No way, that's on the knot. You missed the punchline yeah, because every the fact, so there's more, No, because every fact they go, not, it's it's like a nineties punchline <laughs> website. It's they got you good. They got you good. It's like a nineties okay, it's like a lame nineties onion. It's just not nah. <laughs> yeah. That's a problem. This is actually is a it Garth Garth is their editor in chief, right? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that <laughs> it's like Michael Scott's favorite website. He just loves it. Yeah. With almost thirty thousand weddings and each wedding having about an average of hundred and thirty six guests, huh? there were almost four million people attending weddings just this weekend. And the top five, I thought this was really cool. The top five most popular registry items, again, according to the knot K N O T Jesse was a KitchenAid stand mixer, a Ninja blender, a Dyson vacuum, a Roomba, and an air fryer. Dude, does that surprise y'all? Yeah, that those are some generous in- wedding. Like a Dyson vacuum right. is like 500 bucks. <laughs> yeah, like right. who are these people inviting to their wedding? And the, like the Ninja, uh, it's that, that's, that's like, like a high end. Yeah, that's like a high end. Those are very generous wedding attendees that yes. those are the highest, you know, the most given gifts. Good and for them, man. Lucky for y'all. I have a little bit of a two for today because okay. not only was last Saturday the most popular wedding day there is a new way see for you to feed the people who come to your wedding and i'm saying right here now this sounds like the greatest idea and i'm totally doing it waffle house just got a new food truck oh everybody 
It's a beat up old pickup. I saw that. It's an it's old van with best. Waffle House spray painted on the side. And like, <laughs> no, no, no. Which it's is essentially on the stores. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. constantly on the run from the health department. So it's got like an yeah. extra booster. <laughs> okay, listen to the price. This is what's going to blow your minds. To rent the truck, the fee to rent the truck, ninety dollars. <laughs> wow! And then it is fifty dollars an hour based on mileage to and from the event, and then you just pay for the food that you're feeding people, and you get the full menu. Which the food is like twelve bucks to feed two hundred. So it's, right, you know. yeah. I was gonna say ninety dollars covers seven hundred waffles. That's <laughs> a fantastic deal. <laughs> so I just think for all of our friends that are planning their weddings. It for the rest of this year and next year, know that there is an option to have a Waffle House truck at your wedding. Is that what you're going to do? Yeah, for sure. I'm going to do that. You guys are going to love it. Can you imagine? How can, how, how can we show that before God and man that this uh, sacred matrimony that we are keeping, you know, with the utmost respect and dignity yeah. by serving those in attendance old waffles out of a van? Man, <laughs> stop. you're acting like it's just waffles. Can you imagine how much fun it would be? You're dancing on the dance floor. You're stopping by the open bar and then you're going to get some scattered, smothered, covered and chunked. Uh, oh, yeah. Hash browns. Come on. You're not you're not going to have a better time than that wedding. I know I know what everyone wants when they're sweating it out on the dance floor, and that's a, a big plate of spiced meats <laughs> and, and rolled up in sausage form. You're totally right. Crispy Annie. bacon everywhere, scrambled eggs to your heart's content. I'm telling y'all, just what, like I said, everyone wants on on a hot August night while that's dancing right. and it's drinking. It's the best. Is, is I'm so more... thrilled about it. I have a theory that. Your appreciation for Waffle House is directly proportional to your Southern accent because I am totally with you on the Waffle House. I love it. It's like the one of the things I miss most about the Southeast living in California is Waffle House. And when I say that, people are like, what? I was like, you don't understand. It's a (laughs) a, I mean, you know, the I mean, you of all people would know what is in that food. And you yeah, and I'll tell you good. what, Science Mike isn't telling us to stay away. He's telling us not to get in a swimming pool, but he's saying go to your local Waffle House. Yeah, you Respect. will get in a pool that that has like an intricate filtering system and, you know, perfectly calculated chemicals. Yet you'll eat at what is the equivalent of a gas station that doesn't serve gas, only waffles. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, you got it. You nailed that, it's Jesse. You're basically, not wrong at all, but. A Waffle House. A Waffle House is basically a place where people pull off to use the bathroom and maybe get food. It's a bathroom first. Not in the South, man. A restaurant. No, no you're so wrong, bud. Yeah. I'm telling you, oh, when man, you come no, to my I wedding and there's a there's a Waffle House truck out there, you're going to change well, your tune. Well, and speaking of weddings, like th- those gifts are crazy. What about the best right? gift you can get a new couple? The gift of self sufficiency. Just a card that says, congratulations, you're on your own now. And then that's it. Or even better, congratulations, I've robbed your house during the wedding. I want to see how sufficient you are. I want to see if your marriage can go through fire and back. And we've burned your home down. We've literally burned your house down. Oh, my gosh. I agree with you, Mike. I mean, it's tough. It's called tough love. And, uh, you know, anybody can get somebody a Dyson. It teach. It takes a real friend to to wreck their life to see if they can come out the other side. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, they also had in that same article, they had a list of the most unique gifts that the not identified that people were getting. And one of them include a Star Wars Death Star waffle maker. So we can just keep on with that waffle. I know. 
a sushi rolling kit, a Wi-Fi pet camera. Why would you have a Wi-Fi pet camera? What does that even mean? We, we've also given you dysentery because you just <laughs> ate a boiled egg out of the back of a truck. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good note to end slices on. Coming up, we'll hear from Jonathan Merritt. Hit me like a You're listening to Portugal Demand. The song is Tidal Wave. At the beginning of the podcast, you heard Roosevelt with Forgive. It was featuring Washed Out. Jonathan Merritt is a reporter and a writer whose work has appeared on The Atlantic, on Religious News Service, and as well as RelevantMagazine.com. And in his latest book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, he looks at why sacred words are vanishing and how we can revive them. I recently got a chance to talk with Jonathan about the book, what sacred words are, and why it's so important for culture that they remain a part of our day-to-day conversations. Here is our interview with Jonathan Merritt. One of the cool things about your story is you kind of grew up in the Bible Belt and spent a lot of formative years there. But in your adult life, you've been in New York and, uh, you know, have kind of traveled in different circles maybe than you did growing up. When being in these two worlds, how did you kind of encounter people who talked differently when it came to God and faith? Well, you know, if you're, there are a lot of people listening to this who will understand this. If you grow up in the Deep South, uh, you, if you tell someone you're saved or born again, or you attend a Bible-believing church, you know, that's sort of loaded language, but there's no follow-up question needed. If, if you sneeze, someone might say, God bless you. But in the deep south, nobody says, what do you mean by God? Or what do you mean by bless? It's sort of assumed, it's known. And there is this kind of cultural Christian vocabulary that basically everyone understand whether they use it or not. But about five years ago, uh, I moved from the Bible Belt to New York City. And that was sort of a shocking experience for me culturally, because when I got here, I ran into this weird language barrier. It, It wasn't that I could no longer speak English. I could speak English as well as I always could. I could order a hot dog at a streetcar or hail a taxi cab, but I could no longer speak God. And what I mean by that is I, I no longer felt confident in sacred words that I had taken for granted all my life. And I no longer felt comfortable having spiritual conversations. And I thought when this happened, I started to have exchanges with people and I would realize they were working from a different script, that maybe they had heard these words before, but they had heard them with wildly different meanings. Or maybe they'd never heard them before and they didn't even know what they meant. Or maybe they had been hurt by these words. Maybe their pastors or their friends or um, their parents had used these words to harm them and they would sort of shrink back when I used them. Uh, but this was kind of a disorienting experience for me because as a faith and culture writer, I, I sort of fancied myself an expert in post-Christian culture. But one thing I realized after moving to New York uh, is that it's a lot easier to pontificate about post-Christian culture than it is to live in it. 
So, so you mentioned the example of like, God bless you. And it's something that, you know, people who are raised in certain parts of the country, they don't even think twice about responding to. What are some other examples of kind of these phrases we may take for granted, but are more loaded than we realize when you talk to people who maybe grew up in a different religious context? Well, the thing is, is that it's not just Christianese. And if it were just Christianese, it would be a much more limited problem. But what I've uncovered that I talk about in this book is really a sweeping cultural crisis. So when you look at Google Ngram data, for example, you know, Google has compiled all of the speeches and the books and the magazines and the blogs and the websites that have been produced in uh, the English-speaking world going back to the 1500s. Uh, you can search it and you can search the frequency of word usage. What you find when you search that is, is that nearly all sacred words, nearly all words of virtue, nearly all moral and ethical words, not just religious words, but, but words that we consider to be sacred more broadly are in decline by up to 50% or more. You talk about a word like grace, it's gone down. Mercy has dropped. Faith declined. Honesty has gone down. Compassion words, kindness words. So yes, uh, the, the usage of words like God or sin, more meaty theological terms have declined, but actually even some of those words on the periphery have dropped significantly over the last 50 years, and most of us aren't even noticing. What I then did was I conducted a national survey with Barna Group of over a thousand Americans, and I asked them, how often do you have spiritual or religious conversations? And shockingly, despite widespread religiosity in America, only 7% of people said, I have a spiritual or religious conversation about once a week, which is not that much. When I looked at just practicing Christians, that number was only 13%. So if you're listening to this and you go to church, if you showed up at church this coming Sunday, and the only people who showed up were the most faithful people, you look down the pews or the chairs next to you, only about one in eight people in that room feel confident enough to have a spiritual conversation once every seven days. And this was something that really shocked me. And it was the thing that caused me to say, okay, I need to pick up my pen and write a book about mm. this. So th that's super interesting. And, you know, if is it something where... Christians have to evolve their language, or is it something where Christians have to be more confident using these terms that are sort of already known to be, you know, quote unquote sacred? Well, there are a couple things. I think there's the question before the question. And the question before the question is well, should we even care? I mean, does it even matter? Uh, what I did when I was writing this book was I spent a year studying linguistics and I was really, I mean, I've never studied linguistics before or language in general, but I found that there's this emerging body of research now that shows that uh, the language we use, the words we use are intimately connected to the thoughts we think and the thoughts we think uh, predict our behavioral patterns. So a great example of this is the concept of time. You know, in English, we have a futured language. We use different tenses. But if you go to China, they have one tense. And you kind of, you kind of intuit that, that whether it's future or past or present based on the context. They don't really have a future tense. They don't say something will happen. 
When you compare two cultures that have a futured and a non-futured tense, what you find is, is that people with a future tense actually think about the future more frequently. It shapes their thought patterns. They will, uh, they will then express behavior patterns consistent with that. They smoke less, by and large. They have more safe sex, by and large. They save more for retirement if they have a futured language. And I give a lot of examples of this in the book, that the language we use shapes the thoughts we think, shapes our behavior patterns. In other words, if we do not speak about God, if we do not speak about faith, if we don't speak about courage or compassion or patience, the things that Christians call the fruit of the Spirit, then we won't think about those things. Our, our, our minds will become, as a culture and as individuals, less attuned to transcendence. And the resulting effect of that is, is we will become a less courageous society, a less compassionate society, a less kind society, a society that's less shaped by realities of the inner life and spirituality and the supernatural. So if you're someone like me and you say, these things are important, then you have to say, this really is a crisis. We need to learn to speak God from scratch. How much do you think, one thing I've kind of been thinking a lot about is, you know, I read, there was a piece in the New York Times not, not that long ago about like the, the intellectual dark web. You know, there's guys like Jordan Peterson and, you know, sort of really polarizing figure Sam Harris, who kind of, um, for one reason or another, haven't broken through to a lot of mainstream audiences because some of what they said has been perceived as like politically incorrect or, you know, offensive to some audiences, which there's some legitimate concerns there. But how much does sort of, our cultural sensitivity to words that people might find, you know, kind of offensive in some context. How much does that play into this? Well, what I'm not arguing for is uh, to begin forcing spiritual conversations on people who don't want to have them. You know, this isn't like a, an argument for kind of like guerrilla evangelism. And I have to be really clear about this. What this is is, is, is is recognizing that there's a whole heck of a lot of us. Actually, there's an increase, if you look at the data, among millennials over and against boomers who say, I want to find ways to have these conversations. I just don't have a real helpful outlet for that. And so as a result, I'm just silent about these things because I don't have a space. I don't have a place. I don't have people that I can have these conversations with in a way that's constructive in a way that causes less stress in my life, and that is more life-giving rather than soul-sucking. And I think a lot of people, I bet you, a lot of people listening to this right now would say the same thing. They would say, yeah, you know why I don't talk about these things? Because I don't have a place where I can do that in a way that I really enjoy. It just creates tension. It's uh, fraught. And what I want to do is, is instead of saying, you know, if this word is triggering for someone, use it anyway. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying instead is, is find a community of people who want to sit around a table and dream about what these words could mean for us in our day and dream about new definitions. That's going to make some people uncomfortable, particularly if you come from a more fundamentalist background where, you know, you didn't play with definitions of words. But one thing I talk about in this book is, is up until the more modern era, this is the way that ancient Jews and the earliest Christians have always handled language, that we have played with it to release new meanings that are more helpful for our current moment. That was Jonathan Merritt. Make sure to check out his new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. It's out now. Please don't.
Your faith tradition is important and not enough. Maybe you're feeling stuck between doubling down on a formula faith, just going through the motions, or jumping ship from the whole thing. In his new book, The Eternal Current, well-known pastor and worship leader Aaron Newquist reveals there's a far more beautiful pathway, one initiated by Christ and reflected in countless Christian traditions through the ages that our modern culture has somehow lost sight of. The Eternal Current embraces our faith traditions while recognizing that belief must be coupled with participation. Learn how to get swept into God's redemptive work in our lives and in the world. The Eternal Current by Aaron Nequist, available wherever books are sold. Please don't go away from me. Na, 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 yeah. I don't wanna let you go now. Na, 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 You're listening to Yoshi Flower. I, I gotta be honest with you, I just picked this song because of the name. Uh, just because we're paranoid doesn't mean they're not on to us. That's the name of the song. <laughs> there you go, Yoshi Flower. Okay, it is time for our listener of the week. You listen to the show, and it's time to get to know you. It's the listener of the week. All right, Jesse, uh, this week, uh, you picked out a listener of the week that. I will tell you, I have seen Send Us Facts mm-hmm. several times over the last few months. I'm really glad you finally chose them because uh, these caught my eye as well. Uh, tell us about our listener of the week and then we'll introduce him. Uh, well, the first thing that caught my eye is his, you know, I think he is the heir to what I believe to be a fast food empire. Carl Adams Jr. Carl's Jr. Welcome to the show. <laughs> welcome to the show. It is, it is an honor, sir. Thanks, man. It is an honor. Huge fan, by the way. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, your butter, your buttermilk biscuits are fantastic. See, I, I, you like Carl. I, I can't take all the credit. I'm a bigger fan of his uh, his twin brother Hardy. Uh, I like <laughs> I like Hardy a lot better. Big rivalry. They hate they each do. other. Yeah, Evil twin. yeah. Their cousin, their cousin Wendy, though she's oh, the one God. really to be uh, you know, to look out for. Okay, so Carl, uh, you you've been how long have you been sending us facts to try to get on to the podcast? Now you know uh, I started sending facts as soon as I heard about the listener of the week because I thought it just sounded like a lot of fun, and I think I have some interesting ones and so i was like i'm just gonna keep sending these and eventually they'll pick you know, so. and, and he i i like his spunk and his gumption because he doesn't just send it to at relevant podcast at cameron strang gets oh, no. a list at jesse yeah. carey gets a list hey. i like at yeah. Annie f downs gets a list i he, like it he got he got his uh, uh, second you know? nephew bojangle to send me some too i mean he's <laughs> He's blowing us up. Jesse, that was good, Okay, so Carl, uh, let's hope your persistence paid off. The moment you've been waiting for has arrived. I'm going to read. <laughs> I'm going to read your facts one by one, and then we're going to dig into them. Okay, first one. You once won a radio contest for best Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. Before we hear the this award winning impression, <laughs> tell us what were the circumstances of this radio contest? Absolutely. So it was a local radio station here in Colorado Springs uh, about ten years ago. Uh, was doing. Uh, I think actually it may have been a little bit more than ten years ago. It was when Arnold was running for governor of the great state of California. And uh, yeah. they decided to do a contest. So I was calling in on my way to work and uh, they liked me and said, call back. And 
eventually it whittled down and I became the, uh, the winner of it. And so they have me on several times that morning on a segment, uh, just as the governor to interview. So I've got a recording that on my website. So several times. So did they, okay. So they had you on several times. Were they interviewing you as governor, as like the candidate, or were you just doing the basic impression? Uh, they were interviewing me as candidate. And I, what's funny is there was very little preparation. So I just realized I'm just going to riff. And I just uh, went off and they were asking me about, Oscar predictions. Lord of the Rings was okay. on. Uh, was nominated during that time. <laughs> they were asking me about running, right. asking in me about politics. So I was just in, riffing as Arnold all the whole time. So in that spirit, Carl, I am going to ask you a question. You have to answer it as politician Schwarzenegger. Deal? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Bef- okay. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Schwarzenegger, what are your thoughts on the coming Space Force? <laughs> Yeah, you know, here's the thing with about the Space Force. Like, I think if you're the Terminator, they should at least seek you out to get your counsel and get your understanding of space and all of the things that could attack us. I don't understand why I've been completely ignored with this role. Awful, awful. Oh, my God. If you don't already know, Jesse, I was once governor of the Scottish Schwarzenegger. I did a fantastic job. No space aliens on my reign during that time came down and touched our country or our state of California. And I contribute all of that, not to my team, but to myself. Carl sounds like Carl sounds like Sean Connery doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. Yeah, that's right. right. Jesse, I don't appreciate that. There's a great difference between Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sean Connery. Oh, oh my goodness. He's got a bag of them. You the man now, Carl. You have a gift, my friend. Okay. um, I have a feeling we're going to circle back to this one. Um, Your your voice impressions. Uh, Your second fact is you starred in a Super Bowl commercial in 2002. What was the commercial and what was your role in it? Yeah, so I basically played uh, a receptionist for a now defunct company that did voicemail um, for, uh, for businesses, for small businesses. I take no credit for the fact that the company folded shortly after this commercial aired. Um, however, you maybe uh, should. basically what I was doing, it was the idea or the premise of it was that, uh, if you don't have voicemails, a voicemail system, they will kind of set it up for you. So in the commercial, I was actually on camera doing several different voices and I was sort of pretending to be other people that weren't available. So it was kind of a weird concept, but I didn't care. It was a local TV commercial that aired during the Super Bowl, Super Bowl, and I got to do voices on camera. So I was. That's all I knew. That's pretty cool. D- does the does this commercial still exist? Like on YouTube? It does. It's on YouTube. I can uh, I can send you guys the link. It's also on my Facebook voiceover page. Okay, so oh, so, so you've that. had a lot of voice related. They you have all three of these facts. Could you send us like a bunch to choose from? I chose the voice related ones. Sure. And the, because the final one. See, that's another that you, strategy that other listeners need to pay attention to. A lot of you guys are you're sending us three facts, which is all we need. Yeah, it's all we ask yeah. for. Carl goes above and beyond mm-hmm. since six. Well, I started switching so it now. up. I wasn't getting any attention for the three, so I started you know throwing That's different right. things in there, making up some. No, not really. Yeah. Some, they were all true to some extent. So. <laughs> yeah. See, so let us pick our favorite three. Yeah. You know, maybe our taste is yeah, a little different than up. your. What you should learn today yeah. is don't give up. Absolutely, yeah, persistence yeah. pays off, my friends. That's right. Carl, are you in a voice related field right now, professionally? I am not. Uh, I chose instead the fascinating uh, career of insurance sales. Oh, there you go. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, profession. You know, it wasn't uh, like Pixar was uh, beating uh, yeah. down. But I bet your voicemail is incredible. Had that happen, but, you know, it's hard, it's hard to make it in the business, so to speak. 
Do you uh, do you uh, like record the outgoing messages for friends and family, like as various celebrities? <laughs> I've definitely done that over time, especially back in the days when you know answer machines existed. Uh, to date myself a bit, uh, that was something I did. I considered having a job as a kind of a voice a voice guy doing that, uh, you know, just on the side. But uh, I still do voiceovers from time to time for local studios and things, and uh, I really enjoy it. Feel like it's one of the things that God gave me as a talent. I've always been a mimic since I was a kid. So that was always the coolest guy in college, the one who did all the voices for your voicemail. To be fair, yeah, I, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, that was a, we always wanted a, that a lot guy of to dates. come over. Got a lot of dates. Yeah. Out of that. And <laughs> yeah, two, <he> <laughs> his Schwarzenegger impression works well in the insurance field for Austrian immigrants that come over. He can sell them in their native tongue. <laughs> in their native tongue. <laughs> Finally, the, what, Jesse. really, really specializing in Scottish Austrian yeah. immigrants yeah, yeah, with yeah, a specific it. intersection. <laughs> yeah. If but they're they looking for insurance, he's the man to go to. Yeah. They need yeah. insurance too. Yeah. You, and you would not believe what their premiums are. They are reckless people, those <laughs> Scottish Austrians. Okay. Finally, <laughs> Finally, 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 Carl, you were fired from your first job for doing character voices at work. Where did you work and how did you end up losing your job over what I can only call a God given? Well, he was the drive through guy at Carl's Jr. <laughs> well, the, so, so my first my first job, I was 14. I worked at a Jack in the Box uh, in California and uh, I used to get, of course, on the uh, the drive through window, I would do different voices just for fun. Um, my favorite thing was I would be British or I'd be a surfer and, oh, hey, what's up? What can I get for you? And then I'd do, the, I'd do the entire thing in this sort of accent and then people would drive around and then I'd be a British guy instead. And like you'd yeah, see them uh, kind of like they, looking behind me trying to figure out where's the surfer brilliant. guy I was just talking to. Um, so I was doing one of these riffs on the drive through window uh, one afternoon when I thought my boss was not around. And turns out he had come in at some point and decided that that was not a great representation of his establishment. And so uh, so I lost my job. They're, they're dri- they drive around the corner expecting to see Keanu Reeves. Exactly. And they have the, on- the world's only Scottish-Austrian person. Uh, <laughs> exactly. the exactly. Too shocking. Too shocking for Jack. What, what is your favorite impression to do? What do you think your best impression is? Because it's not Arnold. <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, I think probably um, one of my favorite things to do is when I go out with my daughter, sometimes we'll go out um, uh, on a little mini daddy-daughter date and we'll be British and we'll be from uh, we'll be from Manchester. And we'll just spend the entire time that we're together, you know, talking about Manchester and things from, you know, England and um, things like that. And what's very strange about this is occasionally people will ask me and they'll say, oh, I'm actually from England. And then it's very awkward because I don't mean to be cruel. But you get into the situation where you're suddenly uh, stuck and you've got to act like you're from that place and make up facts. And it's very awkward when this happens, but occasionally it does happen and you've got to stay in yeah. character. Otherwise, you're just a jerk and you're pretending I, that you're I, from someplace that you're not. I don't know what not. to do. Carl, how, how old's your daughter? Uh, my, my daughter is, oh, I could probably lose the accent now. Uh, my, my, my daughter is, is currently 13. I would say savor these daughter daddy dates while they last because they are quickly coming to a close if those shenanigans are still at play. Agreed. Agreed. The the will be too huge and then it will be dad. Shut up. You're embarrassing me, dude. It is true. That's that's funny. Well, well, Carl, we we appreciate you and all your many characters. I mean, you really could, you know, like hound her suitors as she grows up as various characters, you know, various intimidating you know, voices and things. They wouldn't know it's you. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, it's a good, good strategy just to make sure I keep the wrong guys away from her. So, 
That's right. I like it. That's right. That's and right. before I before I have to go here, I just want to say thank you for your podcast. I've been listening since about 2008, 2009. And it's wow. really the only podcast I listen to on a weekly basis. But uh, it has gotten us through some really rough times in life. And uh, it's been just such a blessing. I feel like I know you guys. And uh, I've always looked forward to the potential chance to talk with you. So uh, it's, Carl, it's thanks, amazing. Man. Thanks for oh, listening so long. That means a thanks, lot. dude. Really appreciate yeah, it. Seriously, man. Absolutely. Yeah. I really appreciate him saying that not in a British accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't feel, it wouldn't feel as genuine if it was done That's right. as That's Arnold Schwarzenegger right. right. thanking us. But thank you, Carl. Absolutely. Thank it. you, guys. All right. Well, Carl did a great job, and we really appreciate uh, him listening for all these years. If you want to be a listener of the week like Carl, remember two things. First... We want to hear good stories. So in addition to your three interesting facts about yourself, have some good stories to tell us about. Not everyone can be a Carl Jr., but we want to hear your story. So if you want to be a listener, like the second thing you can do is hit us up at Relevant Podcast on Twitter or go to the podcast episode page at RelevantMagazine.com. We're looking for new people every week. So you got a, you got a chance. Uh, also, hey, I want to thank Jonathan Merritt for talking with us today. You can check out his new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. It is out now everywhere. You can follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Merritt. And also, hey, he co-hosted a podcast that we're really excited that we were able to partner with him on. It's called The Faith Angle. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. And many thanks to Science Mike for sitting in, man. This was a lot of fun. We love uh, catching up with you. It's always the most fun I have waking up early to join Team Relevant. <laughs> yeah, come on. Good, man. We appreciate it's it, good man. to hear. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, hey, uh, before we go, I, I want to remind you, this is Friday's podcast. On Monday, August 27th, on Monday, we're starting Impact Week at Relevant, and each day next week we'll be live on Facebook, we'll be on Instagram, we'll be on Twitter. We're going to be going live every day. We're going to be trying to raise uh, money for some very important social justice organizations on Monday, we're going to be tackling domestic hunger by supporting feeding children everywhere. On Tuesday, we're going to be tackling sex trafficking by supporting A21 and their amazing work to free women caught in sex trafficking and rehabilitate them and uh, prosecute the bad guys. On Wednesday, we're going to be supporting uh, the refugee work that Preemptive Love uh, Coalition is doing and uh, trying to fund a safe space for children in the middle of a, a, a massive refugee camp that lost its funding. On Thursday, we're going to be supporting uh, or trying to help with emergency relief and food and medication in East Africa that's suffering under that eight-year drought and uh, people are losing their lives and we want to raise money for World Vision on that day. And on Friday, we're building wells with Charity Water. Join us. We're partnering with Bright Peak Financial all week. They are a nonprofit financial services group and they'll be participating. So your giving will be amplified. Uh, each day, there'll be different things that they'll be doing to significantly move the needle on the gift that we are collectively trying to do. So tune in all week. We'll be doing crazy stunts. We'll be having amazing guests joining us. Uh, we'll be live throughout the day. Uh, and set aside some money and join us uh, next week for Impact Week. It starts on Monday, so don't miss it. Uh, we'll be doing our normal podcast like usual next week. If you tune in during Impact Week, you'll actually be able to watch a live stream behind the scenes of us recording a show, and you'll hear all the outtakes and see why we edit ourselves yeah. so heavily. So yeah. there you go. Don't miss it. Next week, Impact Week. Tune in. You can find out more at relevantmagazine.com slash impactweek. On that note, we'll wrap things up. I'm Cameron Strang. Chandler Strang. I'm Jesse Caring. I'm Annie F. Downs. I'm Science Mike. We will see you on Monday. Tune in, Impact Week.
for listening to The Relevant Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Check out other shows from The Relevant Podcast Network in the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com. And while you're there, browse exclusive podcast merchandise at our online store. Make sure to subscribe to Relevant Magazine. Info is available at relevantmagazine.com forward slash subscribe. We have disturbing news this evening from the moon base. One of our Soviet colleagues has found to have peed in the pool. Relevant Podcast Network. Shop Amazon for last minute gifts. Great deals for everyone on your list. Gifts for mom and gifts for dad. Even for your sister and your brother, Chad. Ah, shoot, we didn't realize we were supposed to get a gift for our dog walker guy. We almost forgot about our dentist, Dr. Kerr. We didn't expect to get a gift from her. Or our cousin, I forget his name. He got us something nice, better reciprocate. For last minute deals on gifts for people you forgot. Get past the free shipping at Amazon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.